0: you know, just making sure that you do have a good investment recipe and you are selecting good investments to, again, try to make the most out of what you have and then aligning that back to your plan. So um, so we're not looking at investments in a vacuum, you know, we're really looking at it in the context of everything, of our life and trying to make smarter decisions and get the most out of life and, and minimize our lifestyle risk, if you will.
1: Welcome to Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Find answers to your toughest questions, and get educated about the financial world. It's time to Retire Smarter. Welcome to another edition of Retire Smarter. Walter Storholt here with Kevin Krosky, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you all throughout Northeast Ohio, Southwest Florida, and in the greater Pittsburgh area as well. Find us online at truewealthdesign.com. Kevin, what's up with you this week?
0: Well, uh, I'm good, buddy. Um, I think the last we spoke, um, I was—we were talking a little bit of football. That's that time of year, and um, you made a comment that next time we spoke, uh, the Steelers' record may not be so good. But uh, just coming off a big victory against Cleveland Browns last week, I'm—I'm I'm feeling yeah. pretty good at four and three this that? week. So. Without a kicker at that? <laughs> <laughs> Without a kicker? Yeah. Jeez. Yes, but uh, small victory. I know we're, we're fighting for bottom in the uh, in the division, but I'll take it.
1: Hey, you ne- never say never in the NFL. Extra game this year. I mean, just lots of opportunity still out there. So, uh, you know, things may be uh, heading in the right direction for you. So keep that terrible towel waving.
0: Let's say there that. you go.
1: Yeah, uh, Well, looking forward to today's show with you, Kevin. Uh, lots of good things to talk about. Um, and I just, you know, when you sent over the notes for today's show and I just saw the word recipe, my stomach started rumbling, but I realize we're talking about investment recipes and not food recipes. So I'll have to put the hunger aside for a moment. But uh, before we dive into that, and I know you're going to set the stage for us well, uh, you also have a bit of a public service announcement for our, our listeners as well. You've been getting a lot of people kind of reaching out now that we're less than two months from the end of the year. Year and uh, some people are acting with some urgency, maybe to th- some things happening inside their portfolios and their financial lives.
0: Yeah, literally over the last I don't know two three weeks, we've had about a handful of people reach out from listening to the podcast or reading articles I've written over the years. Um, you know, we've we've done a few episodes on pension lump sums and episode sixty two uh, for. Was one where two, the title was 2021 may be the best year ever for these, and um, I'm not going to go into the details, but you know that's we're kind of in the the crunch time there where paperwork has to be filed and submitted, and uh, if you're going to avail yourself of that lump sum in in 2021. So uh, <laughs> we've had a few of those last week um, in the last weeks about pensions and questions and. There's not a whole heck of a lot of time to do proper planning, but um, we'll certainly do our best to help people. Uh, so it's, it's good that they're becoming aware of it. And then also, you know, our last episode, we talked about the, um, the tax proposal um, that came out for the Biden tax plan. That certainly seems to have shifted <laughs> quite a bit from when, when we spoke just a few weeks ago and uh, the sausage making continues. But nonetheless, um, there's, there's always some year-end things to do from a, a tax planning and a tax smart distribution plan perspective. And we've had a few questions relating to that as well, often in conjunction with the lump sums. What do you do and how do you tie this all together, sort of thing? Um, we went over that in detail uh, a couple times over the years, but episode thirty-one and thirty-four particularly, we went over that. Um, you know, if you're a DIYer uh, or just want to learn a little bit more, um, those are some episodes that may be good to digest. Um, and then retiree health insurance too. Um, I think probably that you know, and, and this isn't surprising. But if you look at the top concerns that uh, that our clients have, uh, particularly when we start working with them, initially is you know making sure that their money lasts, you know creating that income stream, health insurance concerns, um, going off the employer plan is always a big one, making a transition onto onto Medicare or even filling that gap before Medicare starts at sixty five. Making sure you're just paying your fair share of taxes, but no more, and then proper investment planning. Um, so those are a lot of the things that we talk about, you know, on the podcast because those are the key concerns that our clients tend to have uh, over the years. And uniformly, <laughs> out of the, the handful of inquiries we've we've almost pleads for help, I would say uh, we've received over the last few weeks. There's been uh, all of those in, in pretty much every single one. So uh, so I thought it would make sense to. Just, you know, if you're kind of coming into the podcast now and listening to it, you know, there's definitely, I, I think, some good content that's out there that addresses those pain points, specifically retiree health insurance, episode 59, uh, pre-Medicare, we went over in detail. And uh, we didn't do a specific episode on it, but there's an article on our website uh, from last year, from December last year, how to get a 16168 dollar tax credit on obamacare even if you're affluent and that's even easier in 2021 because of some of the tax changes in these stimulus plans so so a lot of things to do before q4 in q4 before the end of the year you know pension lump sums tax smart distribution planning tax planning health insurance, you name it, and then obviously putting it all together in the context of your financial life plan. But um, there's no time like the present to get started, but uh, the sooner you get started, the better for sure.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, it actually brings up a good point, point. I don't want to get sidetracked from the main uh, meat of today's episode, but I don't think it's something we've ever really talked about, Kevin, and maybe we can do a a fuller episode on this at some point. But uh, how long does – like when somebody says, yeah, let's let's do a plan or let's have a conversation, they begin that relationship with you. I realize it's a long-term relationship, but I don't know. Is there a ballpark average of how long you go from we're starting the planning process to, okay, your plan is in place and working, and now we're into kind of maintenance mode? Do you even look at it under that lens?
0: Um, well, I, I can answer it um, objectively, which I always try to, to do quantitatively. Um, I was in a uh, continuing education uh, meeting uh, just a couple weeks ago, and there's an industry survey about you know, how much time it takes in that first year or two to do the planning for a new client don't quote me, but on ballpark, it was like, I think 30 to 50 hours uh, in total. You know, some people are, certainly there's a lot of variation that's in there. Some people are a little bit simpler. Some advisors work slower than others, you know, so on and so forth. But, um, but everybody's a little bit different, you know, we're those unique snowflakes, like we've talked about. So um, some people you can, you know, if, if you're proficient and if you've seen that issue several times before, and those are problems you solve all the time, you can move pretty quickly, but you also need to make sure that you're moving at a pace and explaining in a way where the client can understand it. Because the whole purpose is to not only give the advice, but really give them the clarity and confidence so the client can make a, a more informed decision on what's best for them. So, so that's really where you know you kind of have a little bit more um, art than science, and a little bit more um, bedside manner, if you will, than just you know dealing with the details that go into it.
1: Like every great financial planning answer, it depends.
0: (laughs) Yep, you got it. Yeah, I mean for us, usually it's about like three to five meetings in the first year, Um, and you know over time we'll we'll generally get down to one to two meetings per year. Um, But again, everybody's different.
1: That's some helpful uh, context, at least, to understanding what goes into the planning process. And again, if you need some help with your financial plan or want to meet with an experienced advisor on the True Wealth team, all you have to do is go to truewealthdesign.com and click on the Are We Right For You button to schedule your 15-minute call with an experienced advisor on the team. Again, that is truewealthdesign.com or call 855-TWD-PLAN. All right, let's get into the meat and potatoes of today's show, Kevin. See, you put recipe in there, and I just keep making food references here. That's good, Walter. Uh, Investment allocation update, something that you've talked about many times before, allocation and uh, all related topics. Thinking about your investment recipe, uh, what is there to update in the world of investment allocation?
0: Sure. Uh, Well, a couple of things. Give a little context first. Uh, It's it's generally, I'll write a letter, a client letter, uh, about twice per year, Talking about you know the portfolio, how we're positioned, changes that that are being made at the, those times. Usually, it's it's written at a time when there is you know an adjustment to the portfolio. Really helping to educate as well as set proper expectations uh, for investment returns. Um, certainly, you know we don't nobody has that crystal ball, but we've talked about some of these expected return forecasts in the past. You know, certainly markets change and. Um, always dealing with something new but one of the reasons why this is critically important um, beyond just you know having a good investment recipe, a good which is akin to having a good investment allocation in conjunction with having good ingredients or selecting the investments is when you just think about your um, your retirement plan. So uh, we have a true wealth or retire smarter solution. Um, We could go through it in episode 45, but it's really our process to go ahead and and help um, make smart decisions and and make the most out of what you have. And you start the big picture, you know, kind of visualizing retirement, pulling everything together, um, really kind of digging into cash flows, sustainable spending, things along those lines you know, looking to optimize pensions, Social Security, and, and other income sources like that. Uh, but then you really have to start doing um, some stress testing. Uh, we This is kind of step four in our process. We call the risk mitigator. But uh, one of those components uh, is really kind of stress testing uh, your financial plan to assess your lifestyle risk. And really what that means to me is um, the risk that you're going to have to make a change. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to have, nobody really likes to pull back spending, but, you know, if things don't go as, as well as you hope, there's different areas where maybe there's less pain to cut back. Um, you know, if if you have that second home or something like that, and maybe you're not you don't hold on to it forever, but maybe you hold on to it till age 80 as a kind of a simple and common example I'll often give. Um, but you're not going to cut back on your your the needs that are in your plan, so to say. So whenever you're doing this sort of stress testing, you need to have risk and return assumptions to go ahead and properly do it. Uh, so you have to be thinking about the investments from uh, both a financial planning standpoint, stress testing standpoint, and then of course, you know, just making sure that you do have a good investment recipe and you are selecting good investments to, again, try to make the most out of what you have and then aligning that back to your plan. So um, so we're not looking at investments in a vacuum. You know, we're really looking at it in the context of everything of our life and trying to make smarter decisions and get the most out of life and, and minimize our lifestyle risk, if you will. So um, what I thought we'd talk about today is really just pull out some of the what I feel are the kind of the key concepts and key information that I shared in the client letter. You know, I'm not going to get into, you know, this is a podcast and, and I wish we were in a world where you didn't have to make these disclaimers like McDonald's on their coffee, say caution, hot, Like okay apparently there's people out there that don't know that coffee's hot and certainly there's attorneys that will be happy to sue them if that disclaimer is not on there but you know we're not giving advice here this is purely educational uh, I'm not going to talk about specific investments or anything like that I'm really just talking about concepts and, and helping people hopefully be a little bit more educated and have a little bit more appropriate expectations um, so for clients that are listening um, certainly I go into more detail in the client letter and I do talk about some of these specifics because You are clients and we are giving advice to you. Um, So just kind of a a little bit of a, unfortunately, a necessary disclaimer in today's day and age. When we think about your uh, portfolio, we think about it in really three broad categories. Uh, So uh, we'll say preservation assets, this could be cash, lower volatility bonds. Stuff that you know may not get a heck of a lot of return, but you're not gonna really lose your principal value, so to say. Uh, you may see a slight decline in value in some bonds in a rising interest rate environment or something like that, but definitely lower volatility bonds really there to preserve your assets. On the other hand, you can have appreciation assets. We think of these certainly stocks, both domestic and foreign. You could have publicly owned real estate or REITs, real estate investment trusts. Uh, And you can also have private investments like private equity that we would put in this bucket. So a lot riskier, a lot more volatility than preservation assets. And certainly, uh, generally speaking, you would expect a higher return uh, because of that risk that's involved. And then lastly, um, third category, we call these diversifying assets. Some people call them alternative assets, Uh, definitely more broad uh, definition. In this category, if you, you know, if you're reading stuff online or maybe talking to different financial folks, I would say the preservation and appreciation are a little bit more well-defined or accepted, uh, but the diversifying assets, as we think of them, they're really assets or strategies uh, They could be kind of traditional assets just used maybe in a different, you know, kind of non-traditional manner, but they should provide a unique and positive expected return pattern. Um, unique and positive. Um, so you can have a unique return pattern, Walt, but you can also really not have a positive expected return. Uh, Walt, I hope you're not, I know you're a sports guy, um, and I'm sure you're aware that you can bet on you know, the coin flip of the Super Bowl. So right. yeah. definitely unique return pattern, um, but no positive expected return there, buddy. So hopefully you're not doing that. No, no I, I don't like the 50-50 uh,
1: coin, coin flips in terms of yep. my odds try to okay. try to hedge a little better than that maybe
0: <laughs> okay good good yeah you definitely want the odds in your favor um so some of the assets i, I, go, that...
1: for, I go for the gatorade what color is the gatorade gonna be you know because I, th- I, I didn't think even the, know
0: you could do that yeah there, i think there is even one where you can bet on the color of the gatorade <laughs> <laughs> all then um well that seems to be like people could influence that so that one could be it right. does yeah you're right um But uh, some of the assets that uh, we typically would find and and put in this category, higher yielding bonds, higher yield generally means higher risk and higher volatility. Uh, Another way of saying uh, higher risk to a certain degree, Uh, preferred stock. Um, So um, it's stock, but um, it 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 has kind of preferential treatment over common stock. Oftentimes you'll see like bank stocks um, and uh, in this category and other financial assets. You could also have privately owned assets it could be private credit or you know privately uh, owned bonds that just aren't traded in the market on a day-to-day basis as well as private real estate so it's still real estate just like you may own in uh, a public REIT so fundamentally it's the same type of property by and large um, but it's not you know marked to market every day that you know the, the stock market is open um, and the stock market arguably kind of amplifies, you know, some of the volatility, you know, in the reits um, compared to private investments. So, um, so again, diversifying assets, are, are we'll talk about a little bit more. But appreciation assets and preservation assets, I think, are pretty easy to understand. So, three broad categories, Walt. So we'll uh, we'll take one at a time here. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So uh, if we just go into the appreciation uh, assets. Um, so one of the things I put in the client letter was and we've talked about this on the podcast too, you know, what we do uh, is review several return expectations, several uh, forecasted return assumptions from from different firms um, uh, to that I mentioned in the client letter were from Vanguard and Schwab. Vanguard, and we'll link to these in the in the podcast notes. Uh, but you know, go ahead and read them, subject to all the disclaimers that they make and their methodology as well. But Vanguard is definitely on the more pessimistic side uh, with stocks over the next ten years, averaging about three to six percent on average. The higher return, the six percent, is for U.S. stocks relative to the lower three percent for U.S. stocks. Um, so that may sound a bit alarming to some. And while Vanguard is definitely more on the pessimistic side. Uh, they are by no means alone in their pessimism um, from the expected return forecast that we review. On the other hand, Schwab is a bit of an outlier on the positive side, but even at that, Schwab is only expecting 6 to 7% annualized returns for large stocks you know, per year over the next 10 years. Uh, and, and for Schwab, uh, they basically expect you know, similar returns for both domestic US stocks as well as large foreign stocks Uh, so so kind of there you have some uh some forecasts if you will um a very broad base um and but we'll start diving down a little bit more kind of peel the onion if you will so if we look at the us and just think of the us as the s p 500 which everybody's familiar with um one of the reasons why these return forecasts are lower is is because of the starting price so we've all enjoyed I mean, if you've been an equity investor anyway, um, you should have received, you know, quite attractive returns over the last several years, you know, particularly from from U.S. equities. Um, so prices have gotten higher uh, today. If you look at, you know, the valuation, basically the the current price divided by, in this case, what I'll refer to as the 12-month forward earnings or what these companies are supposed to make over the next 12 months, you know, that's trading at a little bit north of 21 times today. So what does that mean? Well, one way we can compare this to try to gauge if it's reasonable or not is simply just compare it to itself over the last 20 years. So on average, over the last 20 years, the S&P 500 has traded at a valuation of about 15 and a half or said another way, a 27% discount relative today. So while I'm curious, how does that strike you?
1: I like the sound of discount.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, um yeah, but the, the, the <laughs> I love you Walt. <laughs> I I would give you a hug if we were in the same room right but I, now. But but I don't like the sound of discount in this situation. <laughs> right <say. laughs> because we're we're at a non-discounted price. Uh, we're at the high price right now and get, to get back to average, uh, we would have to see stock prices come down by 27%. You know, said another way, uh, and and this isn't saying by no means take this as like, hey, the market's just gonna you know go crashing down twenty seven percent. We don't know, and these nor do Vanguard Schwab or any of the other firms that do this expect return um, forecast, uh, even with a good process and a good methodology. But prices are undoubtedly higher today. Whether they stay there, who knows? Um, it's plausible that they could largely stay intact, uh, but not really. Go up anymore, and so if the companies continue to have positive earnings, on average over the next ten years, well, that valuation comes down from twenty-one, and maybe it ends up at, you know, fifteen or sixteen. But, you know, and it's more reasonably priced at that point. But we really haven't had any return. Um, stock markets kind of move sideways to a large degree if you look back over the seventies. Uh, so you somewhat had uh, at least. A similar example of this uh, occurring in history, um, but it's not that common. So you know, you never know uh, the path or anything like that. But but nonetheless, uh, I think there's an elevated risk, you know, just given the price today. And it's important to remember too, uh, there there is no good market timing mechanism. It'd be great if we just knew when to sell out of the market, go to cash or bonds, and then get back in. We've talked about that in the past as well, um, back when everything was in lockdown mode in March and April last year, when people were really thinking about cashing out and sitting on the sidelines because everything was so scary and nobody knew what was going to happen. And I'm sure most people didn't think that things were going to bounce back, at least economically and in the investment markets as quickly as they had. And at that time, we went through and actually looked at the evidence, both theoretical and actual for, uh, there's a category that Morningstar has where it's tactical um, allocation. So people that are trying to do those sorts of timing moves get in and out of the market or make big allocation decisions. And the evidence, you know, spoiler alert, is very, very poor. And what I thought was kind of cool is that theoretically, there was, there's some good you know, papers that were written about why it won't work and what you can expect. And the actual evidence mirrored it you know, very, very well. So theory meets practice, but in a negative way in that regard. So timing doesn't work. Um, and also, you know, just because something's expensive doesn't mean that it's going to go down next year. In fact, if you look at you know the historical returns and how much does you know next one year returns, how much does the starting price explain of the next one year returns? Really close to zero. Um, it, it just doesn't. You know, there's investment markets or have so much noise and so many other factors that come into them that even though something could be in the nosebleed territory in terms of price, it could get higher in price next year. That starting price doesn't have any explanatory power over the next one year. However, if you look at a little bit longer term, uh, just say five years. Well, what you find there is that starting price is going to explain about 40% of the return variation that you're going to have over the subsequent five years or 60 months. If you go out to seven or 10 years, that'll actually get up even a little bit higher, maybe about 60 or 70% of the returns. And when you think about this logically, I mean, it makes sense. Price matters. You go to the car dealership or you go out shopping for some other item. You know, the, Certainly there's quality and value that's there too, but uh, all else being equal, which it never is, but I'll I'll say it anyway, (laughs) all else being equal, you know, the higher price you pay, the lower your return you're going to get. So that's important to remember. And if I just kind of bridge this back to your retirement plan and the whole, you know, our retire smarter solution, and you think about kind of segmenting your dollars out, you know, most clients have you know outside of the appreciation assets you know within the safer buckets of money at bare minimum they have 3 years worth of their portfolio distributions within or i would say with outside of these appreciation assets a lot of clients have you know 5 7 10 some clients have really well funded retirement plans in more than 20 years of really their distribution needs in, in non-equity assets. So if you're thinking about you know putting this all together and we're trying to make good allocation decisions, well, one of the things, one of the tools in our tool belt is, well, hey, we know where our client's income is coming from if things hit the fan and we really have to pull down less risky assets outside of the appreciation bucket and just buy some more time to go ahead and let stocks rebound. And then also when you do that, you know some of the allocation moves that you will make if you're going to go ahead and favor cheaper assets and you know kind of you know, get away from these higher priced assets, same sort of thing should work there too. Uh, again, there's that correlation as you move out over time that that starting price is going to explain a large degree or at least a good part of the degree of the return that you're going to get over a five or seven or 10 year period. And if you needed to, you can always buy that time by spending down your non-appreciation assets first. There was a lot that was there. Let me take a pause for a moment and check in with you, Walt. Um, That makes sense. Any questions? Or did I do the Charlie Brown teacher impersonation?
1: No, no, it it makes sense. I'm tracking you so far. Um, It's definitely a a lot of data and a lot of numbers to keep up with, but I think you're breaking it down in a good way. Okay. I'm still licking my wounds from the discount comment. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, speaking of discounts, I'll give you another one. Um, so, uh, and I think this is interesting, which is why I'm mentioning it. But um, also uh, on average over the last 20 years, um, well, let me, let me back up for a moment. Generally speaking, the US market will trade at a valuation premium to the rest of the world. We're less risky. Uh, arguably, we grow faster. We have a higher composition of uh, sectors like technology companies compared to like Europe and what have you. And, and those those types of companies tend to command higher higher multiples, higher price to earning multiples. But similar to how I just compared the S and P five hundred value today to itself over the last twenty years, if we compare the U S. to foreign markets. On average over the last 20 years, uh, the discount of foreign markets, so these are large stocks outside of the US, um, the average discount has been 13%. Today, that discount is 29%. And if you look at that a little bit further from a statistical standpoint, this level of a discount should occur less than 2.5% of the time. So I mentioned those expected return forecasts from Vanguard and Schwab. Vanguard had a much higher expected return for foreign stocks. This is part of the reason why. Um, It's not saying that foreign stocks are a cheap buy. I would argue that most parts of those markets are are reasonably valued. There's certainly there's parts that are more attractive and other parts that are more expensive. But in aggregate, um, they're more reasonably valued, if you will. But the the reason why they're at such a big discount today is because the U.S. and the S&P 500 have done so well. Um, So even Schwab. You know, Schwab is projecting similar returns, you know, 6 to 7% range per year over the next 10 years for both domestic and foreign stocks. I'll just mention this, but I won't get into it. Um, I, would, I would argue that there's probably a little bit more of a margin of safety, if you will, in, in owning foreign stocks compared to the elevated price U.S. stocks, even though the U.S. is likely going to grow faster and so on and so forth. It's just that that starting price um, for many of those U.S. assets that are within the S&P 500 are quite a high price
1: that i i'm tracking that that makes sense and uh good to know there's opportunities uh in all of these sectors and and maybe just a few more opportunities because of that
0: disparity you know there's well i mean I, or, it, or opportunities it, it, isn't the right word perhaps no, I, I I'm just thinking where my mind went with that question is it's definitely a difficult time to make um <laughs> to make a good all weather investment portfolio. It has been for quite some time. Um, there's certain assets that we that we like and, and like a lot more. There's certain parts of the U.S. market that are quite reasonably priced. If you look, um, I talked about the S&P 500, but if you look at small value stocks, they're trading about on average where they've traded over the last 20 years. And that's despite having really strong returns more recently. So you kind of need to look under the hood a little bit and do a little bit more thinking. I'll just keep it kind of a little bit higher level, if you will. Our client letter goes into this some more. And if anybody is not a client, but wants to read it, you know, you can go ahead and send us uh, just go to the contact us page on the website. I'll be happy to share it with you. But, but nonetheless, it's difficult today. If you go back, think of like the 2000s you know, when the tech bubble burst and, and we're kind of approaching those, those nosebleed territory for valuations. It was a lot easier to go ahead and build a diversified portfolio back then that you had a reasonable expectation that it was going to do well. Interest rates were still high maybe around 7% for bond yields. Real estate, you're probably getting about an 8% yield back then. Um, the stodgy value stocks that you know, people like Warren Buffett liked um, were out of favor because it didn't have a dot-com in the name. International stocks hadn't done nearly as well. There was a lot more favorably priced assets back then and today there's a lot more highly priced assets all around. Um, so it's definitely more difficult today. I don't think there's any doubt about it, but that's where my mind went. So there's still, you know, there's still relatively speaking some opportunities and some probably things that you want to avoid, um, but it's it's definitely more difficult today for sure.
1: Interesting comparisons back to the dot com era. So that's sort of the landscape for those appreciation assets. You outlined the three groups for us a few moments ago. So what about uh, preservation assets? What's the skinny there?
0: Yeah, the, these I, I like these just because they're mostly math. And it's a lot easier, um, I think, to to understand. Um, but in short, you know, the starting yield uh, or starting rate, you can kind of think of that, is really going to explain about ninety percent of the return that you're going to get you know, from that bond or, you know, say from like a core higher quality, lower credit risk type bond. Everybody knows today um, rates are low, yields are low, ergo expect pretty low returns from the high quality stuff here. There's two types of risks when it comes to bonds. You always need to know what kind of risk you're taking in, in any investment, um, but bonds are kind of easy. Uh, I think anyway, um, you're, you can take credit risk or you can take duration risk. So let me talk about duration risk. It's a little bit easier, but duration risk is just moving out and buying longer dated bonds. Um, so you know you can think about like a fifteen or thirty year mortgage. Um, well, which one generally has a higher rate attached to it?
1: That'd be the thirty, right?
0: Yep, you got it. So the further you go out in time, the more interest rate risk there is over time. Thus, um, the rates on longer dated bonds or mortgages are, are going to be higher. That's You can have an inverse of that in some very unique situations, but that's a pretty rare event, but that's what you have there. So duration does well. Um, longer data bonds do well if interest rates are about flat or if rates decline. And I'll just give you kind of an example of this, but um, if you bought a 30-year treasury bond today, its duration is about 17 years. I won't get into the math behind it so much uh, about what that means, but uh, I'll give you a simple rule of thumb. So if interest rates were to move uh, up by 1% over the next year, the value of that bond, that 30-year treasury bond would come down by roughly 17% or so. So you can have l- pretty big losses in these longer you know, duration bonds if interest rates do go up. Um, so again, they're, they're low right now. They've gone up a little bit here over the last year and a half. Um, I know a lot of people are concerned about inflation risk and, and higher rates. Um, and if you that, have longer that's, data, that's a
1: really out of balanced seesaw. When you go up one percent on one side and down seventeen percent on the other side, <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that, in the reverse, <laughs> the reverse I, I'm is having true.
1: flashbacks to when I was a kid, Kevin. I did the uh, very dumb thing of having all the other kids pile onto the other side of the seesaw so that I would just be hanging out way at the very top and the idea was i could stand on the on the top of the seesaw way up above the ground with all that weight on the other side it was very stable and then one kid said jump off and all the other kids jumped off at the same time and i came crashing to the ground and Got a couple of <laughs> got a couple of stitches above uh, above the eyebrow that day so oh, geez. that that sounds like the that, what, what happens to bonds when uh, when when something goes up uh, when the interest rates that, go up a percent that's, 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 a,
0: that's a good concrete example Walt uh, I like it I like it a lot um, the ground I'm comes sure. up fast <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the other risk within the category uh, credit risk um, and and People, at least people in, in our industry and kind of the investment business talk about credit spreads. Um, really what that is, is kind of the additional yield or the higher rate that's charged relative to government debt on loans of um, lower credit quality. So and this varies, I mean, you could have, um, you know, like Apple where even though there's some credit risk there, it's very minimal. Um, so their bonds uh, aren't quite uh, priced the same as government bonds, but the spread above government bonds for similar duration is pretty low. If you go lower down the um, to the credit quality, the yields will get higher and then the risk of default or bankruptcy uh, gets lower. Also it, I don't think a lot of people appreciate this, but in the corporate bond world, um, the bonds are callable. And uh, so if rates go down, uh, then those corporations have the embedded option. To go ahead and refinance and pay off that debt at the same time, when you, the bond investor, are really enjoying those big yields that just go away once they refinance. Um, uh, what was that word you used, Kevin? Callable. Callable. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for interjecting there. So, um, so it just gives them an option to go ahead and call the bonds, and just like how uh, consumers will refinance their mortgage, you have um, the, the, these mortgage bonds that investors buy. You know, all of us is. You know, consumers here in America that uh, don't have a free and clear house, so to say, we go out and get a mortgage uh, and those bonds, those mortgages are packaged together and sold to, to investors. So as rates go down, uh, people refinance and then those bonds are paid off sooner. So that's kind of a prepayment, um, but corporations have a similar option where the bonds are callable and they will just refinance the debt. Do the same thing that people, consumers do on mortgages, and then they, the corporation, will benefit from the lower rate, and uh, the investors um, are left holding the bag in that in that regard.
1: All right, very good. Thank you for the uh, extended explanation. There is you that. It. Is that everything to know about preservation, uh, the preservation assets?
0: Yeah, the the one thing I would say is, um, so these credit spreads um, are tight, meaning that um, they're expensive. So generally speaking, these sectors are expensive. Um, So similar to what I said with stocks, a lot of parts of the stock market are expensive. A lot of parts of the bond market or these preservation assets are expensive too. So there's no free lunch uh, that's there. Um, So it kind of is what it is. And then I'll just briefly comment on the diversifying um, bucket. But here, at least the way that we think of it, here's where we would put in um, more credit-sensitive investments, higher yield bonds. Higher yield sounds a heck of a lot better than saying junk bonds, uh, <laughs> but that's you know it's another word for them, um, quite frankly. Um, so, and, and there's different parts of the market. This gets a little wonky, and I'm not going to go down there. But these are some things that we're using uh, in the portfolios for our clients today because there are parts of these markets, even though spreads are tight in aggregate there's parts that are more attractively priced. And there's also different sorts of ownership structures that you can use here. Again, whether it's a private fund or there's something called an interval fund that really, uh, in our view, better matches the investments that they own to the liquidity of the fund. A lot of times you'll see people owning different investments um, that really aren't that liquid. Uh, And then if you own it in an open mutual fund format, and the market sell off, some really bad things can happen um, where you know there's just kind of forced selling. A lot of this happens in times of distress, like financial crisis in 08, uh, even in particularly in March last year, a lot of bonds really sold off quite a bit, not nearly as much as stocks, but um, nonetheless, they sold down a lot. Um, but there's different things that you can do here where you could just kind of engineer it a little bit better through the ownership structure or through even using some low cost leverage and taking a bond and and kind of getting a little bit more expected return out of it. There are things that you can do there. There's certain parts of the market that um, I think make sense. And, and we have a pretty hefty allocation to these in our client portfolios right now, because we do like the risk and return um, relative particularly to the other Two buckets that I mentioned. Um, but this is something, if you're just kind of a DIYer, um, you're probably not going to go into this category. If you are thinking about it in your DIYer, just be careful. There's a lot of investments that are in this category that I'd say are third rate and aren't, aren't really going to add much value there. So this is really where a lot of more skill and prudence comes into planning.
1: Skill and prudence, something that's needed, uh, I think, every time we join together on this uh, Retire Smarter show, Kevin. So. I appreciate your help and your guidance through uh, talking through these things today. And again, if you want to read that letter that uh, Kevin wrote to clients, and even if you aren't a client, do reach out, and uh, I'd be happy to share that with you. Again, you can go to True Wealth Design. Dot com and just use the contact page to get in touch. That's also the place to go if you want to schedule a time to meet one-on-one with an experienced financial advisor on the True Wealth team for your 15-minute call to find out if uh, the True Wealth team is right for you. Go to TrueWealthDesign.com and just look for that Are We Right For You button. Kevin, thanks for the breakdown of everything. Go Steelers. Enjoy the beginning of fall. And uh, any final thoughts to wrap up today's show?
0: Watch out for that teeter-totter
1: watch <laughs> don't let all those kids don't let Kevin the the jerk of the class be on the teeter-totter when 15 other kids are on there hey. he will tell them all to jump off <laughs> uh, his, his name was actually Kevin but good save Paul. no it's a true story his name was Kevin uh, and, and my best friend growing up also named was Kevin but this was a different Kevin this was the jerk Kevin in my life so <laughs> all the other Kevins I've ever met have been good good guys alright there you go Uh, Thank you, sir. We'll look forward to chatting with you again in a few weeks. Got another good episode on the way. We're going to be talking about what it means to be a conservative, quote unquote, conservative investor these days. We'll dive into that on the next episode of Retire Smarter. Until then, thanks for listening.